Let's pray. Father, you are our hope in life and in death, and all that we have has been entrusted into your care. And Father, you are worthy. You're worthy of all of our trust. And we pray this morning as we look at your word and as we look at your son, and we look at your decree over storms and troubles, Lord, our request this morning is that you would meet us here, that your spirit would be present among us uh, to take your word and plant it deep within us. And Father, we ask this uh, for our sake and for your glory. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. And we'll be in chapter 4, verses 35 to 41 this morning. And I want to start by sharing with you uh, what I hope to accomplish in this sermon. My goal is to convince you from this text that Jesus Christ is utterly worthy of your trust. Simple goal. That Jesus Christ is utterly worthy of your confidence, trust, regardless of how difficult of a situation you find yourself in. All right? So that's my target. And I've got a lot of ground to cover. So we're going to jump right into the text. So if you'll stand with me, uh, we're going to read uh, Mark 4. We'll begin reading in verse 35. On that day, when evening came, he said to them, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were filled, or were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up. And rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? And do you still have no faith? And they became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the winds and seas obey him? You may be seated. So my goal is to convince you that Jesus is utterly worthy of your trust. Because I think that's the goal of this text. This text is in our Bibles uh, to make an argument, uh, to persuade you that in those moments of uncertainty, those moments of difficulty, those moments where your life seems to be upended, that Jesus Christ is worthy of your trust. And if, if I'm able to accomplish that, if the Lord takes this text and applies it to your heart this morning, uh, then you will leave here uh, singing. You will be a happy person because you will realize that in the midst of upheavals, Jesus is in charge. And it's okay. It's okay. All right. So here we go. We find ourselves this morning uh, towards the end of a very long day in the life of Jesus. The day began, remember, with the calling of the twelve apostles in chapter 3 and verse 13. And it doesn't end, this day does not end until the healing of the demoniac in chapter 5, which Lord willing we'll look at next week. But this is the kind of day that puts all of our long days to shame. Now we have not uh, experienced a long day at all compared to what Jesus goes through here, and actually not just Jesus, but also the disciples as well. For 12 of them, the day started as you know, just a normal day, but it ended with them being, well, and actually quickly um, turned when Jesus called them to himself up to a mountain and said, okay, you 12 are now the official delegates. 
the official representatives uh, for me on earth. Then they come down from the mountain. They go back to the house in Capernaum, probably Peter's house. And the great crowds are there and they've gathered around. And you remember in Mark chapter 3 that there was a special delegation of scribes that had come down from Jerusalem uh, to give sort of an analysis of Jesus and his ministry and probably report that back uh, to the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And they see Jesus' ministry and they're not impressed. Uh, They think what Jesus is doing uh, is he is sort of a co-conspirator with the devil and he's a false teacher. And so they set out to undermine Jesus uh, and discredit him and they publicly denounce him as a heretic. Well then, the disciples and Jesus and the crowds leave the house. They go over to the Sea of Galilee where the crowd again gathers and Jesus was teaching. You remember though that the crowd was so thick and they weren't just there to see Jesus. What were they wanting to do? They wanted to touch Him. Imagine a thousand people that just want to touch you. That make, Five people that want to touch you make some of you really nervous and afraid. I get that. Uh, but a thousand people I mean, more than a thousand, wanting to touch you. And they're pressing in on him so much so that Jesus comes up with the idea of a floating pulpit and he sort of pushes the boat out to give him some distance so that he can teach these people. And the disciples sort of wade out in the water, most likely, and are holding the boat steady. And Jesus teaches them all afternoon. But at some point, you've got to finish the sermon, right? Amen. And so, verse 35, Jesus says, or the text says, On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go over to the other side. He taught all afternoon, most likely, starting to get a little dark. Let's go over to the other side. Now, remember, they're in Capernaum, which is on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee, which the Sea of Galilee is shaped kind of like an upside down pear. The widest part is on the north end, and the smallest, of course, is on the south. And Capernaum is on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. So to go to the other side would be to go to the east across the lake. Uh, It's really a lake, but it's colloquially called a sea, the Sea of Galilee. But it's really a lake to us. So they want to go across the lake, which is seven miles, roughly. It's not just a little boat ride. It's this seven-mile ride or row across the sea. Now, why then would the Lord want them to go across the lake? What's he doing? Well, he's doing a couple things. Right? The Lord's always, he's never just doing one thing in your life. He's accomplishing so many things at one time. But we know for, uh, for sure he wants to go across the lake because there is a man on the other side, in the land of the Gerasenes, who is enslaved by the devil. And Jesus has an intention uh, to liberate this man from his bondage and set him free and actually commission him as the first missionary in the Gospels. That's one reason Jesus wants, he cuts his sermon off and he heads across the lake. But there's a second reason that has to do with the sanctification of his disciples. And that we'll see in a few minutes. But for now, all we see in verse 35 is that the Lord calls the disciples to pack up and head across the sea to the other side. And notice verse 36. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat just as he was. Now, it's very interesting. Uh, If you think about it, if you look carefully at the verbiage there, notice who's in charge here. They took him along with them, just as he was. Now, you would think the text would read something like, Jesus led them across the sea. Uh, But there's a a little bit, I I think here, of a a little bit of an implication. These guys have just been appointed as the official delegates. The crowds, you know, are wanting to accost Jesus and touch him. And it's it's almost like, Jesus, we'll keep you safe. Don't worry. Come over here. Get in the boat. You know, you want to go to the other side. Okay, we're your men. We got you. Trust us. We'll take care of you. 
Um, we will protect you. We'll, we'll get you to where you need to be. Just trust us. You're in good hands. And Mark says, verse uh, 36, they took him just as he was. Right, so there's no time uh, for him to gather anything off the shore, to say bye, to end the session, really. They just get out of there. Uh, so they take him just as he was. In the boat that he's been teaching in, they just sort of moor it away and take off across the sea. Now these boats were typically about 26 feet long and about 7 feet wide with a center sail. Usually there would be, in a normal um, operation, there would be four or five men in one of these boats, room for four rowers, and they would you know, make their way across the sea and fish and do their work, and there was enough uh, stability in the boat for it to be weighed down with you know, a large catch of fish with four or five men. So without fish in there or other equipment, it could comfortably seat about 12 to 15 people on a calm sea. But we know there's at least 13 people here, 12 apostles, and Jesus. But we also know that there was a group of other disciples that were present, and there could maybe be 20, 30, or maybe upwards of 70 disciples here with Jesus. And we don't know the number for sure, but we know that they couldn't all fit into one boat. And so verse 36 says they sort of pile into different boats. There are, there are other boats there as well. So here they are. Uh, several boats loaded down to max capacity. And when they were actually loaded down like this, uh, it was quite dangerous. Right? Because they're packed in there and it would weigh the ship down and then the sides would be almost overflowing with water. So it's fine on a smooth surface. Right? I don't know if you've ever experienced this. Have you ever been in a boat and you're suspicious of it? Like, I don't know if this thing is going to work. I trust you. Uh, or maybe I don't trust you. Maybe I need to get out. But I trust you. But I don't know if we're going to make it across here. Uh, I was in a situation like this. Some of you who know me well, you know that I really like to fish. Um, well, when I was, before Savannah and I had children, uh, I did a job, a construction job. That's what I did when I was in uh, Bible college to pay my tuition. I would install your doors and windows and stuff like that. You just thought it was professionals doing it, but it was actually me. Um, well, I was doing this job, and there was a guy there that was, you know, I, you know, I installed his uh, door or whatever it was, and, uh, you know, on the side of his house, he had this old, rickety, kind of plastic two-man bass boat. It was just leaned up against his house. And I could see that it had cracks in it, but he had, like, siliconed it and patched it. And so I said, hey, how much do you want for that boat? And uh, he said, you can have it. And I said, what? And so he gave me the boat, I loaded it up, and that became my prized vessel. You know, I was <laughs> fishing all the time in that thing. Well, Savannah likes to fish as well. So one day we were, I convinced her uh, to come with me uh, to go fishing in this boat. And I had been fishing in it quite a bit. I knew that it was, you know, stable, at least for me. Uh, but there had never been two people in it. Uh, she was suspicious, and I think rightly so. Uh, it could have been the size of it, uh, the cracks in it. Um, <laughs> she was suspicious, but I convinced her to go with me. And we did. And, you know, we, we got there and sort of backed up and set the boat in the water, and I'm on the side, I'm holding it there. Savannah gets in it, no problem, right? So you can trust me. Everything's fine, Savannah. We're good. Uh, everything was great until I stepped in it. And when I stepped in, the thing just went, <laughs> and you should have seen her face. All of a sudden, her fears were being realized. Um, but no, we, we actually made it. We were able to do it. We just sort of bobbed around on the surface of the lake, and somehow we actually were able to catch some fish. Um, but the point there is um, Savannah got in a boat with me that was pretty questionable. Um, we did it. It was fun. Great memory. Uh, but... After that, Savannah called my precious boat uh, the cooler lid. <laughs> that's what she called it, the cooler lid, because that's what it really looked like. You know, we don't have a, you know, a picture of it, but that, I know that's what we looked at out there, you know, just floating around on this little cooler lid. We had a great time, though. Anyway, that's the sort of image I have, these guys on the Sea of Galilee. Right, they're weighted down on these sort of ancient cooler lids there, traveling across the Sea of Galilee about six or seven miles, which really is no problem for them. Right? I mean, most of them, well, majority of them are fishermen. 
This is no big deal. And they grew up in this area. They know the, the Sea of Galilee well, and they, they knew they could handle it. At least they thought they could handle it. And the image there is that they sort of got everything in control, right? Jesus, trust us. Get in the boat. This is our profession. We, we know what we're doing. Let's go. We can get you across there. And everything's fine until verse 37. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, right? which is the exact opposite of what you want if you're on a cooler lid in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And the NASB sort of understates it, I think, with that statement, it's a gale, a fierce gale of wind. It's really a, a ESV, LSB, they call it a great windstorm. And that's really what it is. It's this great, massive windstorm. It's a strong wind. It's called a lilops in Greek, which is the word for a whirlwind or a hurricane. Right, so it's not just a, don't think of a strong Texas breeze. Right? This is a a whirlwind. Aristotle said that a lilops was a whirlwind revolving from below upward. Another writer said this, this type of storm, he described it as never being a single gust of wind, nor a, nor a steady blowing wind, however violent that wind might be. But it's a storm that breaks forth from black thunderclouds in furious gusts with floods of rain that overthrow or that throw everything upside down. That's the description of this kind of storm. That's exactly what you don't want when you're overloaded in a small boat on a six-mile journey across the sea. This is a bad situation. Essentially, it's a hurricane. I think that. I think that kind of power. And it came on all of a sudden. That's really, you've heard this, that's characteristic of storms on the Sea of Galilee. Because of the topography, it sits about 700 feet below sea level. It's surrounded by hills. To the north is the tallest mountain in the area, so there's cool wind that comes down from the mountain. To the west is the Mediterranean Sea. To the east is the desert. So you've got these winds coming in, different temperatures, and that just sort of makes this sort of uh, soup, really, of inclement weather. And actually, the Sea of Galilee sits 700 feet below sea level, so it's kind of like a bowl. So all this is coming in, and it can happen in a moment. And these fishermen, they, they knew this. But this is no ordinary storm. This is a bad situation. It's such, so bad, and this is uh, recorded, that some of these storms, the, the waves on the Sea of Galilee, can get up to 10 feet high. Now, Savannah and I, when we were on our cooler lid, we were in a little tributary on the lake. And so we could fall over, no big deal. It's a different story if you're in the middle of the lake on a cooler lid. And it's an entirely different story if you're in the middle, lake, middle of the lake on a cooler lid in a hurricane. Right, so this is where these men are. So that's the setting. I didn't tell you where we were, but you probably gathered that we were looking at the setting. And then we saw the storm. All right, so that sets us up to really the key focal point of the story in its entirety. Because this is not a story about um, Galilee. This is not a story about the disciples, really, or storms. This is a story about the Lord of the storm. It, the focal point is on the sovereign in the middle of the storm. That's the focal point. It's the, the thing you lose sight of and I lose sight of when life is hectic. That's the focal point. And what this story does for us is it zeroes in for us on the sovereign of the storm and just says, hey, look, look at him. Look at him. And then look at yourself. See how panicked and frenzied you are? Now look at him. Who should you be trusting? In? It's really simple. It's just sort of highlighting the sovereign and the Lord of the storm. So what I want to do with you is just show you four things. Working through this, looking at really four uh, characteristics of the sovereign, the king, the Lord over the storm. And hopefully by the end of it, you will say, wow, I am a fool for not trusting him. I w it would be absurd for me not to throw my lot in with him. All right? So first, notice his serenity in the midst of the chaos. Look at verse 38. This is amazing. It really is amazing. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. <laughs> Hurricane, 
gale force winds. I mean, unbelievable situation. And Jesus is asleep in the stern. The stern, of course, is the back part of the boat. And apparently there was some sort of cover, maybe, or some way that Jesus was maybe out of the rain. Uh, there were some of these boats they've, they have found would have a deck in the front and the back. So maybe he was under the deck. We don't know. Maybe he was just there getting you know, drenched. We don't know. But whatever was happening, what we do know is that he was in the stern on a pillow asleep, which is very unusual. So how was he able to do that? How can you sleep in the midst of a storm? Well, there are two answers, I think, to that question from the text. The first answer, I think, contextually, is the most obvious. Jesus is sleeping because he's physically exhausted. Remember, this has been an incredibly long day. And while Jesus was fully God, he was also fully man, meaning that he experienced all the physical limitations that we do. And something I haven't mentioned to you, and some of you may have recognized, but something I haven't mentioned to you, that not only was this an extremely long day, but you know what Jesus was doing the night before? Luke 8, the parallel account, tells us that before Jesus appointed the 12 apostles, he stayed up all night in prayer. So at this point, Jesus has likely been up for 24 hours straight. Now you're grumpy when you don't get you know, your 10 hours or whatever. And I am too. So I'm not just blaming you for that. But here's Jesus, almost nearly 24 hours straight, no sleep. And so he gets in the ship, or the boat, and he's utterly exhausted. He's been ministering, he's been serving, uh, he spent the whole day, uh, the whole night in prayer. He's, he's been uh, with the twelve and the other disciples. This is uh, a, a situation where Jesus is constantly on, right, constantly having to give uh, answers to questions, constantly teaching, healing, responding uh, to scribes that you would hope would be on your team and they're not on your team. And, you know, all the internal turmoil that comes with a hectic day with no sleep, amp that up by a thousand fold and that's where we have Jesus. And he has labored so intently and so earnestly that as soon as he gets in the, the boat, he grabs his pillow, lays it down, and he goes to sleep. He crashes, just like you or I would do. So in one sense, he's able to sleep through the storm because he has exhausted himself in service to his father. But he's also able to sleep through the storm because of probably what you thought of first, his confidence and his trust in his heavenly father. Jesus is the only one in the boat who understands what it means to live under the father's care. No one else gets that. Jesus gets it. And although the sea is chaotic, the disciples are in a frenzy, and the boat is in a pretty bad way, Jesus knows that Peter is not the one at the helm. Jesus knows that. that Peter is not in charge. He understands that his father is the one who is at the helm of this little boat. And because of that, Jesus is not panicking. He's not in a frenzy. On the inside, chaos on the outside, but on the inside of our Lord is perfect peace. No fear, no doubts, no questions as to the Father's wisdom and the Father's care. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Father. So he's able to rest. That's the key to good night's sleep. Trust God and go to sleep. Right, we saw that just in our previous text. This is the living expression of Psalm 4.8. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Yahweh, make me to dwell in safety. I don't have to stay up and panic. You alone make me to dwell in safety. I know who keeps me safe. I know who's in charge. And it's not these crazy disciples that are running around. It's the Father. 
So then there's a really powerful contrast between Jesus is sleeping on the pillow and then these disciples that we are so much like. What are they doing? Well, we know from Luke 8 and from their question in verse 38 that they think they're about to die. They think the situation is about to kill them. So what would you do if you thought, you know, you're in a room and if you stay in this room, you're going to die? You would be trying to get out. You'd be trying to figure out a way to survive. You know, these men are seasoned, many of them are seasoned um, sailors. But this is such an extraordinary storm. Their boats are so loaded down that they realize they are about to capsize and they have no hope. They'll drown in the middle of the sea. So uh, I want you to think with me, though, about the buildup to, the, to verse uh, 38, where they finally come to Jesus. Now, how do you get to that point where they come to Jesus and essentially um, you know, question his care and love for them? Jesus is asleep. The storm is raging. The disciples, I mean, the, the wind is, I mean, the, the waves are crashing into the boat, meaning that the disciples would need to be bailing water Four of them, at least, would be able to be rowing. And they're doing all that they can to get out of the storm and to the other side. But at some point, they get desperate enough to finally wake up Jesus. It's almost like, really, like a last-ditch effort. It's like they've done all they could. They're at the end of their rope. And now... They want to get Jesus involved. Isn't it like that a lot in difficulties? You sort of do it all in your power. We got this. Look, I've sailed a hundred times, a thousand times. I grew up on this lake. I got it. I can do this. Trust me. I'll take care of it. And you get to the point finally where you're at the very bottom. And you're about to drown. And you finally go to the Lord. So why, why did they not wake Jesus up sooner? That's the better option, right? Well, they didn't wake him up uh, for what I just said. They, they thought they had everything under control, just like us. They were trusting in their own abilities, their own experience, their own abilities to navigate the storm. And so they give it all they've got. They trust in their flesh, their strength, until they come to the very end of it uh, and they finally knock on Jesus' door. They finally say, Jesus, he, okay, we've done everything we could. Jesus, can you help us? And really, the contrast between these two is powerful. For Jesus, and just consider this, for Jesus, the storm is raging on the outside, but on the inside, he's calm and composed, trusting in the Father. But for the disciples, the storm on the inside is just as bad as the storm on the outside, right? So much so that they begin to question the very faithfulness of God. You don't do that unless there is a storm raging in your heart. Somewhere in the storm, they began to have questions as to how Jesus could just sleep during such an emergency. And as their fear of the storm grows, it's not dying down, they're doing all they can, they're, they're exhausted, it's been a long day for them too. And as they press on, they hesitate to go to Jesus because they think they can handle it. And as they tarry to bring the issue before the Lord, listen carefully, as they tarry to bring the issue before the Lord, their hearts begin to drift until they start to believe the lie that Jesus does not care about them at all. That is what happens when you tarry. When you hesitate to go to the Lord, you are vulnerable to believe all sorts of lies. Maybe they're thinking, we're just tools to Him. He's been talking about all the farmer sowing the seed and he's going to do all the work. All we've got to do is just sow the seed. You can be incompetent and sow the seed. So maybe we're just tools to him. We can drown. You can lose your hammer and go buy another one. And maybe, maybe that's it. Maybe we're just farmers or slaves 
to him. Maybe he just doesn't care about us at all. He's just going to let us die out here in the middle of the sea. Maybe this is Moses. You know, maybe this is just let them all perish and we'll start over scenario. But what happens when they start thinking this way is that the inner storm begins to grow until it eventually matches the chaos on the outside. And when they've reached their breaking point, they come to Jesus, wake him up, and say, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Are you just going to let us die out here? Are our lives of such little value and worth to you? Because by all appearances, you don't care about us at all right now. And I, I can imagine that most of you have felt that same feeling before. Jesus, do you not care? Maybe you've just been tempted to think it. Maybe you've asked it. Maybe you've wrestled with it. I don't know. But the storm of life is raging around you. It's relentless. It's chronic pain. It's chronic relational trouble. It's chronic marriage problems that seem like they'll never be resolved. And you finally reach the point where you're tempted to ask, Lord, do you not care about my misery? Do you not care about my pain? And that is the saddest thought you could ever have. Think of a worse thought to have. I mean, the saddest thought you can ever have is that the Lord Jesus doesn't care. Because if God doesn't care, boy, we are in trouble. But let's just think about this. What happens when life is chaotic is you lose your mind, right? You stop, you forget, oh, I'm in the boat with Jesus. He has authority, he can take care of this problem, but you forget that. You forget all your theology off and it goes out the window, you start believing lies, and you start, you get, you know, sort of spiraled down enough that you ask these kind of questions, Lord, do you not even care about me, about my situation? And the response to that is so simple. I mean, just, let's just think about it here. Did Jesus care about these men? You tell me. <laughs> yeah, he cared. Uh, he cared enough to leave the wealth and comforts of heaven to be in a rickety boat in the middle of the lake with them. And he cared enough to give his life as a ransom in their place. He cared enough to die on Calvary for them. He cared enough to do that. And they have no idea, no idea, how much this man asleep in the ship cares about them. They have no idea about the magnitude of Jesus' loving care for them. But they will learn it. Right? And when they get it, Acts 2, post-Pentecost, it changes everything. Right? Then now, their lives are not their own. Right? They, they, once they get it, then life is changed. But at this point, they, they don't get the magnitude of Jesus' care and therefore, they ask this question, and I don't think, really, at this point, they have no idea, any idea as to how painfully offensive such a question would be to the Lord. He who was rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake, becamest poor. And here he is, you know, paying the ultimate price, essentially taking on human flesh, living with these knuckleheads, you know, really, in one sense, laboring, staying up all night, praying for them, you know, experiencing life in a human body, all for their sake. And they say, Jesus, and you don't even care about us? We'll, we'll look at that in just a minute, but at this point, the reality was not at all that Jesus didn't care about them or the storm, 
The reality was just that Jesus was not upended by the chaos like they were. They, they were upended, they were disturbed, they were distraught. But Jesus was resting in the Father's care. Now, there's an easy solution to your problem, disciples. Just trust the Father. Now, of course, that means you have to bail some water, but don't panic. Just trust the Father. Jesus was resting in the Father's care, and he understood that the Father was at the helm of the boat, and because of that, he could rest. The disciples expected Jesus to be as frenzied as they were and to act in accordance with their level of panic. But listen closely. You may be upended by your trial. You may be panicked and frightened at what lies ahead of you today. You may be dreadfully afraid of the diagnosis. But Jesus is not. Jesus is not in a panic about your problem. He's not worried about it. He's not fretting about it. Uh, He can sleep in the midst of your problem. Why is that? Well, (laughs) because he sits enthroned above the chaos. He is with us in the storm. That's true. But he's also above them and over them. He's not panicked about the storm. He's not worried about outcomes because he's resting firmly in the Father's decree. Uh, Jesus didn't need to be awake to fix their problem. He, 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 he didn't. All they needed to do was trust the Lord and bail some water. And they could get through. Keep rowing, but do so trusting the Lord. Jesus could get them to the other side while he slept. But they interpreted Jesus' sleep as a lack of care for him. So be careful that you don't judge the Lord by your feeble sense. Now, the disciples, of course, could have rested just like Jesus, but because they tarried in their own strength. And I mean internal rest. I'm not saying they shouldn't have done anything. Some of you are thinking, well, somebody's got to bail the water. That's true, but internally, the disciples could have had the same internal experience as the Lord Jesus because they the spirit of God's work they could have had it but because they tarried in their own strength handling their problems and their own power their own wisdom they forfeited the peace they could have had if they would have just went to the Savior it reminds me of that great hymn what a friend we have in Jesus all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrow share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Are we weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? Precious Savior, still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Do thy friends despise, forsake thee, Take it to the Lord in prayer. In His arms He'll take and shield thee. Thou wilt find a solace there. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. I mean, think of the peace these dear men could have had as they bailed their water. But they forfeit it. When you fail to take your worries and concerns to Jesus during the adversities of life, you forfeit your peace You burden yourself with needless pain and worry. And all of that could be resolved if you just take it to the Lord. That's that's how you get serenity in the midst of a storm. And that's how our Lord could sleep in the midst of the storm. Perfect. Jesus was able to sleep perfectly peaceful because he was perfectly peaceful on the inside, trusting his Father's care. 
So that's, that's the first thing I wanted to, uh, you to see, the serenity of the Lord. He's not panicked. He's not worried. He's not fretting. He's resting confidently. But notice in verse 39, the second thing we see is the Lord's authority. The Lord's authority. They wake him, and then in verse 39, what does he do? He got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. This is absolute power over nature. Now he stands up, the sea's roaring, the waves crashing, it's rocking. It seems like everything is about to be upended. And Jesus looks out and he rebukes the wind. Who does that? He rebukes the wind. You and I, we rebuke our kids for having their feet on the table. Jesus looks at the storm and rebukes the wind. This is no ordinary man. He's a man, he needs to rest, but he is not a man in that sense. He, he has power that no ordinary man has. And then he looks at the noisy sea and he says, hush, be still. Literally, be silent, be muzzled like an ox. And immediately, the wind ceased. And again, the NASB says that it died down. I just don't like that. It seems so tame. It didn't just die down, you know, sort of like gradually. Okay, things are calming down a little bit. No, immediately at his command, the wind stopped and the sea became like glass, perfectly calm. Can you just imagine what that would have been like? You know, you're in your cooler lid. You think your life is over. It's done. And Jesus is asleep. That's, you know, awe-inspiring enough and baffling enough. What is Jesus doing? And then he just stands up. How are you able to stand up in the midst of this crazy storm? And then he rebukes the wind. I mean, these guys understand that there's only one being who has charge of the elements of nature like this. God alone is the one who rules the swelling of the sea and stills their waves. That's Psalm 89, 9. He is the one who rebukes the waters and they flee. Psalm 104, verse 7. And Psalm 107, 23 to 29, you might write that down and read it. But that's almost like a poetic capturing or retelling of this story. For sake of time, I'm not going to go there, but it would be worth reading. But the point I want to make is that these men understand what's going on. And no one has this kind of authority but God. But here's another question. If Jesus has this kind of authority over the sea, Jesus, if you could wake up and calm the sea like that, why didn't you just decree a smooth passage across the sea over to uh, the land of the Gerasenes? He could decree it. He could have done it. That much is we know. So why the storm? Well, that gets to the sanctification, really, of these men. Just think about where they are. We know that they have a propensity towards what? Pride and self-importance. We see it all throughout the gospel. And at this point, the crowds are pressing in to see Jesus. And they're sort of pulled aside you know, from time to time, and they're given the key insights into the kingdom of God that's just for them. Uh, and Jesus is telling them, that, look, the kingdom is coming. You're going to be vital players. I want you to sow the seed. I'm going to take care of the rest. They're like, wow, that sounds like I could live on my easy chair here. You know, I'm going to get all this glory. Everybody wants to see Jesus. You, know, you can just imagine. They're saying, hey, Peter, Peter, do you think I can get some time with Jesus today? You know, these are the, this is the dynamic here. Everyone is forcing their way to see Jesus. And these guys are the closest to him. And 12 of them are now you know, given a badge, essentially. Now, you are now my official representatives. And I remember verse 36, how it's worded. They take him, and they take him with them. It's like the idea is, you know, here they are. They're, they're sort of experiencing uh, some sort of uh, high here. You know, everything is going great for them. You know, they're in charge. Now they're in their domain on the sea. Uh, they're the closest to the Lord. They're the most privileged. 
and they're feeling pretty good about themselves, I think. This is my best conjecture based on the track record of these guys throughout the Gospels. But the storm throws water in more than just their boat, right? It throws water on their egos. And all of a sudden, it brings out in their hearts what they had no idea was there before. And sadly, on the inside of these men were hearts that were still riddled full with unbelief. And what exposes that? The calm passage to the east side of Galilee? No. If the storm had not have come, they would have got to the garrison demoniac and they would have been just as you know, upright and sort of self-important and, and impressed with their own inside to Jesus as they were in Capernaum. But the storm did something to these men. The storm accomplished a purpose. And that purpose was to expose the sinfulness of their hearts. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus had no intention just to make their life miserable. I mean, of course, Jesus didn't want to get wet, I would imagine, any more than you want to be soaking wet head to toe. And no one likes that. But Jesus had a purpose. He had a point in the storm. He could have decreed a, a smooth passage but the storm was his instrument to reveal, not to himself, but to reveal for the disciples what's going on inside of them. So the storm comes, their hearts are revealed. And verse 40 shows us that it was a heart of unbelief. A heart of unbelief. So, we see that really through the Lord's concern. The way that the Lord expresses his concern in verse 40 is not that um, they were about to die. The concern is about their unbelief. Right? That's the real issue. Verse 40 uh, says, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? After rebuking the storm, Jesus lovingly looks at these men and he begins to address the second storm. And that was the storm that was raging in their hearts. Here they were, soaking wet, panicked, fearful, and now totally stunned at what they had just witnessed. And Jesus pointedly asks, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And of course, both of these questions are linked. And the answer to the first is found in the answer to the second. They're afraid because they still lack faith. That, that's why they're afraid. Fear and faithlessness go hand in hand. And the word afraid here literally means cowardly. One who runs in fear. That's the idea. So the question is basically, why are you acting so cowardly? And the answer, of course, is because they were not trusting in the Lord. Who were they trusting in? They were trusting in themselves. Courage is consonant with faith. And it rises and falls based on the object of your hope and trust. Trust in yourself. And you may have a vain confidence that will carry you a little ways until the storm becomes greater than your capacities. But trust in the God of heaven and that will give you confidence to rest in the midst of the greatest storms of life. And that confidence, that trust in the God of heaven is what was lacking in the heart of the disciples. And so Jesus is putting his finger on it here for them. And real, the reality is, is that at this point, these men knew better. They knew enough to trust in Jesus. They knew enough to know that Jesus was worthy of their trust. They had seen him 
exercise sovereignty and power over diseases and demons. They'd heard him teach in, in remarkable ways and with power. They've seen miracles. They know enough to know that Jesus was worthy of their trust, which is why Jesus responds to them the way that he does. He doesn't say, guys, I got it, it's okay. He responds the way that he does because they know enough to believe. They know enough that, to know that Jesus is worthy of their trust. And so he says, do you still have no faith? And really that's connected if you look back at verse 35. They're being faithless. They're not believing, they're not trusting in the Lord. Verse 35, what does Jesus tell them is going to happen? He doesn't say, we're going to go out to the middle of the lake and I'm going to abandon you and you're all going to drown. So get ready. Now he doesn't say that. He says, let us go over to the other side. That's the destination of the sovereign Lord. Let's go over to the other side. It should have been clear enough to the disciples that Jesus was able to get them to the other side if that was his will. And they, they should, well, they learned here uh, that Jesus could accomplish that will even as he was asleep on his pillow. So I think the real issue here is that these men knew what Jesus had said in verse 35, that they were going across the lake, and they had enough knowledge that they should have trusted him. But in their panic, just like you and I, in our panic, we can forget all of what we know and look the Lord in the face and virtually call him a liar. Which is what they do. Jesus, do you not care that we are perishing? This is an indictment. They impugn him for his lack of care. And they, what they couldn't see, of course, as I mentioned earlier, is that Jesus did care. He did care. But in this moment... What does he care most about? Not their ease. Not their comfort. Not their smooth trip across the Sea of Galilee. What he cares most about in this moment is their unbelief. That's his concern. That was the biggest issue in the moment. And so, because of his wisdom and because of his care for these dear men... He's willing to lead them through a terrible storm in order to expose their unbelief for their sake. He knew it was there all along, but they had no idea the depths of their unbelief. And they needed to see it in order to know how to repent. Now, I'm not saying that storms come in your life because you're not believing the Lord. Storms come by the decree of God. He fixes that. We, we don't know. God moves in a mysterious way, His wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. He does whatever He wants. It's always good, it's always wise, and we always have to remember that He sits on a throne of righteousness. When we don't understand what's happening, when the veil of providence hides His throne, we know He's on a throne of righteousness, regardless of what we're experiencing. But oftentimes... You know this, I know this. When we are in the midst of the chaos of life, when we realize what we, where we have drifted, it's, it's, it's so painful for us to see that we have been living in the strength of our own flesh, our own wisdom, our own competency, and now all of a sudden we're bankrupt, and all along we had the Lord Jesus with us in the boat. And all we had to do was go to Him and express to Him our concern. And speak with them. These storms of life expose for us our hearts of unbelief. And when we see our unbelief, we are to turn from it and throw ourselves back onto the Lord. I mean, just think of this. Think of the promises God has made to you in His Word. When was the last time you read through Scripture looking for promises of God to you? To his people. You, through Christ, are a part of his people. But when, when have you stopped? The last time you stopped to consider the promises of God. 
God has made extraordinary promises to you. And when we don't trust those promises in the midst of our adversity, it's as if we're looking him in the face and saying, uh, I know you said you would never leave me nor forsake me, but uh, I, I don't believe that right now. What? We would, maybe we would never say that audibly, but oh, do we say it with our lives and our fear and our panic and our worry our anxiety? It's really tragic. It's, it's, it's such a tragedy for us. And it's painful to know that we, we do this. We wish, oh, I wish I could learn this once and never have to learn it again, right? Man, I wish I could figure this out and know to trust the Lord and I trust the Lord now and forever. You know, but we have to learn this lesson over and over. Storms come again and again. But I think when we get to heaven, if we are able to have regrets, I don't know if we can, but if we can, the greatest reg- regret will be that we didn't trust God more than we, than we did. Right? The greatest regret will be that we didn't trust God more, and that we didn't live more on his promises. I think we rob ourselves of heaven on earth by failing to trust God. And, and the Lord actually expects you to trust him. He expects it of you. He's given you, if you're a Christian, He's given you a new heart. He's caused you to be born again to a living hope. He's filled you with His Spirit. We can trust Him because we have the Spirit of God dwelling within us. And we ought to trust Him. And He expects that we would exercise our faith on His promises and trust Him. Now, like I said, that doesn't mean that the storm goes away. That doesn't mean that. But it does mean that you can pick up your pail and start shoveling water out of the boat with a heart that is tranquil and trusting in the Father. That's what that means. You can endure the storm and do your part and throw yourselves internally on the one who has it all together. And just because there's a storm on the outside does not mean there has to be one on the inside. Now let me just make one more observation about our Lord here. So we've seen the Lord's serenity, the Lord's authority, the Lord's concern. And then in verse 41, we see the Lord's presence. And really, we could call it the effect of the Lord's presence. So the storm has been rebuked, and the disciples have been rebuked, and now these men realize that they're sitting in the boat with the living God, that they've just uh, not, uh, they've just been um, essentially calling a liar, not believing him. Now all of a sudden they're in the boat with God. And look at their response. Verse 41. They became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? It's not a question they're looking to have answered because they know the answer. They get that there is only one being who has command of the winds and the waves There's only one explanation as to how this kind of power and authority and this phenomenon, this thing they've just experienced could come about. And they realize that. They realize this is God. And so they respond just like every other person who has come face to face with God in the past. They become very much afraid. Literally, they become frightened with a great fear. They realize all of a sudden they're in the presence of something far more awe-inspiring and terrifying than the storm that was just calmed. They're in the presence of a living God. And that realization was for them more terrifying than anything that happened outside of the boat. And that's why they respond with such fear. It's the holiness of God 
the holiness of Christ that evokes that kind of fear. It's the realization that God is so unlike us in every way. And all of a sudden, they're in a boat with some, uh, uh, this is a human way of speaking, some foreigner. Uh, this is someone who is not like us. Right? This is like an alien. Right? This is someone who is so unlike me that it's terrifying. And you are God. You are my creator. How in the world am I in the boat with my creator? It's terrifying. And because they all understand that the God of creation is a holy God, perfectly pure, perfectly sinless. And when you look at God in His holiness for the first time, all of a sudden you see how sinful you really are. And then you see how worthy He is and that you should have trusted Him all along. Which is why Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, saw the vision of the Lord on his throne, and he fell down and said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When you see God, you all of a sudden have a reevaluation of yourself. Abraham, after speaking to the Lord, was forced to confess that he was but dust and ashes. Genesis 18:27. Ezekiel and Daniel both fall on their face in awe of the living God, and so have countless others throughout history. And that, that is exactly what's happening in this boat on the Sea of Galilee. These men recognize the divine presence. They recognize that Jesus is worthy of all adoration. They realize that God is at work. And they realize that they should have been trusting in the God who was right in front of them the whole time. God had gone nowhere. Right? They thought God had abandoned them. They thought God was going to leave them to drown. But God never leaves, my friend. He has promised, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God doesn't change. You change. You panic and you run around. We do that. We all do that, right? Chickens with our head cut off. Uh, we're all in a panic. We're all in a frenzy. God's throne is an immutable throne. And for God, everything is always well. Because he knows the end from the beginning. These men recognize they should have been trusting in the Lord God who was right in front of them, and they realized that He was, at this point, they realize, wow, He is utterly worthy of my trust. Now, let me bring this to a close here. Have you realized this? Have you realized that Jesus Christ is utterly worthy of your trust? Have you come to a place in your life where you recognize that the sovereign Lord is entirely and completely worthy of your trust. Are you trusting Him now? I, I look out in this crowd, and I see, I know, many of you are in a storm, and it's hard, and I know that. But my question to you is, are you running around in a frenzy like these disciples? Or are you trusting in the Lord? Are you as tumultuous on the inside as your life is on the outside? It doesn't have to be that way. And I praise God, I know that for most of you that I can think of right now, that that is the case. You are trusting the Lord. But let me just say, for those of you who are not, you need to remember, if you are the Lord's, then Jesus is always in the storm with you. He has promised to never leave you nor forsake you, and that's His personal pledge to you. He's present in the storm. Second, His concern is for your faith. That's His concern. That's what He's after. He's good and He's wise. He doesn't decree storms for your misery. He's after your faith. And he, my friend, has told you enough about him that you ought to trust him. You're accountable to that. Yours, of course, is not to get up and calm the sea, 
Yours is to bail the water with a heart set on the Father, confident in Him and at rest. He cares for you way more than you've even realized. And His concern is that you would believe Him, trust Him, and rest on His promise. Third, remember that Jesus is the authority over your storm. He could have decreed smooth sailing for you. You wished He would have. He didn't. He, had a, he has a better plan than you and I. He could have decreed smooth sailing for you, but He has not done that. And that's not yours to debate or to decide. He's in charge. He's the authority in your life. And sometimes He decrees chaos on the outside to prove your faith on the inside. But whatever the case, your responsibility is to trust Him and take your cares to Him. Don't tear it to bring these concerns to Him. And then lastly, remember that God is not panicked by your trouble. Don't interpret a lack of frenzy on heaven's part to be a lack of care for you. God has decreed the end from the beginning. He knows what is coming in your life. He's not surprised by any of it. And that's not a cause or grounds for you to question His care. It's actually the catalyst, the cause, the grounds for you to throw yourself on Him and to rest in His care because He has it all in His hands. So here's my question. Is Jesus worthy of your trust? Yeah, He is. He is. He's worthy of yours. He's worthy of mine. So then let's trust Him. All right? Let's pray. Father, we would trust you more. So help us, strengthen us to be your people, faithful, resting in you. Help us, Lord, to imitate your son, not the disciples. Help us to be like him, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.